0: Well, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, and we'll begin in verse 9 this morning, Luke 18, verse 9. You'll find that on page 877 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And uh, once you've found your way to Luke 18, I, I also would like to encourage you maybe to find yourself to Hebrews chapter 2, and maybe you could put a little bookmark there in Hebrews 2. We'll be considering Hebrews 2 later on in our message, God willing, you'll find that on page 1002. And so Hebrews 2 and Luke 18, and I'm delighted to be able to come once again before you and to consider God's Word together. In fact, let's ask Him for help. Father, we thank You for Your Word and Your goodness and kindness to us. Bless us as we consider it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke 18 and verse 9, hear now the Word of God. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's in this passage that the Lord gives us this very memorable parable. One I, I trust you are familiar with that Jesus telling us of a Pharisee who prayed alongside a tax collector reminds me of a story that I heard in the late 19th century by the American preacher R.A. Torrey who was preaching in Australia and he was sitting on the platform getting ready to deliver a message and he was handed an anonymous note requesting him to speak on the topic of unanswered prayer the note read dear Dr. Torrey I am in great perplexity I have been praying for a long time for something I am confident is according to God's will, but I do not get it. I have been a member of the Presbyterian Church for 30 years. I have been superintendent in the Sunday school for 25 years and an elder in the church for 20 years. And yet God does not answer my prayer and I cannot, cannot understand it. Can you explain it to me? Well, Tory took the pulpit, and after reading the note to the congregation, he said the problem is not hard to understand. This man thinks that because he has been a consistent church member, a faithful Sunday school superintendent, and an elder in the church, that God is under obligation to answer his prayer. He is not praying in the name of Jesus. He is, in fact, praying in his own name. Tory continues saying, we must give up any thought that we have any claims on god but jesus christ has claims on god and we should go to god in our prayers not on the ground of any goodness in ourselves but on the ground of jesus christ's claims well here we see in this parable a story of a pharisee who prayed very similarly to this man he believed because of his faithfulness to god that god was obligated to him by the way, you notice uh, this parable follows the one we, the parable we considered last week. Both of them have to do with prayer, don't they? Last week we saw the parable of the persistent widow, which Jesus taught us our willingness to persist in prayer shows us what we believe about God. Is he wise? Is he loving? Is he righteous? This parable, also about prayer, shows us that, that our prayers also reveal what we think about ourselves. That's what we consider today. Do we think highly of ourselves or lowly? The the prayers often reveal whether we are proud or we are humble. I wonder if you would, this morning, be open to the possibility that you are proud. Be open to the possibility that you are even arrogant. I'm not saying you are, but as, as I've shared with you before the problem with preaching on pride is all the proud people don't think they need it they're they're too proud and so it just goes right by the people who actually need to hear it so maybe all of us could just for a moment say god am i proud whether you've been following god for four years or 40 or however long it might be you might open yourself up and say god maybe this is a major issue in my life will you help me understand myself by your word pride you see is a big deal to god Proverbs 16 and verse 5 says, the man who is proud in his heart is an abomination in my sight. That sounds serious, doesn't it? You want to be an abomination in God's sight? Then just exalt yourself. Think highly of yourself. Pride is what got Satan kicked out of heaven. It's got humanity kicked out of the paradise of, garden, of the garden. They want to be like God. It was our first sin. Augustine said long ago that pride is like a mother who is pregnant with all sin. That it all starts in us, in our heart, in pride. And we learn from this parable, rather interestingly, is that what we think about ourselves, listen to this, what we think about ourselves will actually impact what God thinks about us. What you think about yourself, what, what you consider about yourself will impact whether God considers you to be righteous or unrighteous. We have two guys in this story, as you've seen. Totally different opinions of themselves. One is considered righteous by God, the other is not. As you see in verse 14, Jesus concludes saying, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So you got one who's justified, the other is not. The word justified, by the way, I think is crucial to understanding this story. The word justified is very similar to the word righteous, which Jesus uses in verse 9. You see that? He also told them a parable who some trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Righteous and justified comes from the same word. Justified is simply the verbal form of righteousness. Righteous is a noun. Justified is a verb. We don't have the verb in English righteousified. right? It would be very helpful if we did, I think, but we don't. So we use the word justified to, justified to mean that we have been declared righteous. Kind of like a judge would declare someone innocent. A judge doesn't make anyone innocent. They just simply declare them to be innocent. That's what justified means. It means to be declared, to be righteous. And just to convince you that we're on the right track, well, you can look at Paul. He talks about this quite extensively, but we don't have to leave Luke. Turn over to Luke 7. We've already seen this word um, justified used in our study of Luke. Luke. And we saw it in verse 29 of Luke chapter 7. And this is a conversation Jesus is having with the disciples of John the Baptist. But notice this parenthetical comment in verse 29. It says, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. See that? You have a little footnote by that word just? Look down at the bottom if you do. And it says, an alternative reading is they justified God. That would be a more literal understanding. So they all justify God. Do they make God just or righteous? No, of course not. What they did is they declared God to be righteous. They announced that God is righteous. And so that's what it means to be justified. It means to be declared righteous. And back in Luke 18, Jesus gets to the end of the story and he says, listen, one guy is considered righteous by God and the other is not. That's what this story is ultimately about. It's about the the problem of righteousness. How can we be approved by God? How can we be accepted by God? There are two solutions presented. One works, the other fails. Oh, the other fails, that's right. And so let let me introduce, so we're going to consider these two solutions. Two solutions, how can we be approved by God? How can we be declared righteous by God? But before we do, let me introduce you to these two guys, as Jesus does in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now, if you were in Jesus' original audience, you'd already be surprised, because tax collectors do not go to the temple. And if they do, they certainly don't go there to pray. They're probably going there to extort somebody. Um, uh, Tax collectors, as you know, but let me just briefly kind of fill you in in case you don't, they're not civil servants right they they don't work for the IRS Uh, and, and as unpopular it is to work for the IRS these guys are far more unpopular They are despised by pretty much everyone in society. Uh, Rome was this brutal conquering army. They would conquer an area. They would declare that this town or this area should pay us this amount in taxes. And then they would hire a local man to make sure that they get that amount of taxes. And whatever he clicks above and beyond that, he gets to keep. And then they give him all the power of Rome behind him. And in other words, these men were sympathizers with this conquering army in order to extort their neighbors, in order to make themselves wealthy. They were awful, despised, similar to Nazi collaborators. One pastor said they are blood-sucking, self-serving, powerful traitors enormously hated and enormously wealthy. And they are willing to put up with the hate because they really loved the money. And no one in Jesus' day would hear about a tax collector and that would be a sympathetic figure to them. It kind of is for us because we get to Luke 19, we find this quirky little tax collector named Zacchaeus. We have little songs about him. But the tax collectors were not quirky. They were hated and despised. I think today we would probably, the, the equivalent would be a drug pusher. The equivalent would be maybe uh, someone who enslaves people in sex trafficking. And so I think to hear this parable right, we might want to just kind of put it in modern context and put it this way. There was an elderly pastor and a sex trafficker and they went to church to pray. One man is approved by God. The other is rejected. They both seek God's approval in totally different ways. Consider the first way we might call a works righteousness, or I believe I have in your notes a self righteousness, the way in which man is trying to earn their acceptance of God by their own effort. Consider verse eleven, the way of self righteousness. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus: "God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He." begins you see there in verse eleven thanking God for his moral goodness he doesn't steal which is good he doesn't cheat on his wife which is good he hasn't even fallen into tax collector like sins which is good he's a morally upright man and beyond that he's also religiously devout as you see in verse twelve I fast twice a week I give tithes of all I get right so he's fasting and fasting often twice a week that's a big deal right some some of you never fast some some people some don't don't even know what fa- fasting is not fast food he's not eating fast food right he's he's going without food two days a week in order to devote himself to prayer probably monday and thursday the traditional days when moses ascended and descended from mount sinai and he would go without food twice a week in order to pray to god he, he, I mean, he, he is certainly devoted to god you know god actually called for the people of israel to fast once a year on the day of atonement so this man is doing a hundred times more than what god has actually called for them to do and and even beyond that he says i give tithes that's i give 10 percent of all i make he's generous unlike the other guy we'll meet in a moment and 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 here he is so he's good and he's moral and he's devout and he is rejected by god look down in verse 14 He says, I tell you, this man... Now, that's not a reference to the guy we're talking about. That's a reference to the tax collector. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. He was not accepted by God. Now, you think, what's the problem? Why... Why is he not accepted by God? He's good. He seems like a good man. He seems like a devoted man. What, what's the problem with this way of being accepted by God? Well, there are a lot of problems with this attempt to be approved by God. But our passage, I think, identifies three things that are wrong with this working for God's acceptance or this self-righteousness. The first is we see that the self-righteous often congratulate themselves. They congratulate themselves. You notice his prayer. He, says, he begins by saying, God, I want to give you thanks. God, I thank you. And if you're going to offer a prayer of thanks to God, you think you might mention something that God actually did. Right. You might you might want to say, you know, God, thank you for taking care of me or providing for me or guiding me or giving me a family or creating this world or whatever it is. You might want to thank God for that. But instead of listing what God has done for him, he makes a list of what he has done for God, for which God should ultimately thank him. In fact, in these two short sentences of his prayer, he mentions God one time and himself five times. I, 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 I. I, he prays. It, it, you can summarize his prayer saying, God, I'm wonderful. You're welcome. Amen. Okay? Okay? It, it, it's, it's, less a pray- it's more of a boast than it is a prayer, isn't it? And, it? In fact, you even notice where he is standing by himself. He prayed. Again, you'll see a little footnote there that's interesting. This somewhat difficult to translate. It might be, if you look down on the bottom of your Bible, or standing, prayed to himself. Some translations say he prayed about himself. It certainly seems to be what he's doing, praying about himself. And he even is willing to do this in the temple, right? Jesus says they're in the temple. Remember what the temple's for? What do you do in the temple? Temple is not the place where you go and pray your own righteousness. It is the place where you seek forgiveness for your unrighteousness, your lack of it. In fact, Jesus says this is what he's doing in verse 9. And notice, congratulating himself, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. He trusted in himself. He's proud. Notice, by the way, uh, Jesus didn't tell this parable about some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. He's, I, find, I like that, that word two there, very interesting. He told this parable to some who trusted themselves in righteousness. He was telling this, he's looking them in the eye. When he was warning them of earning God's approval by their own work, he was telling them they're self-righteous and they're proud as they congratulate themselves. You also see a problem with self-righteousness is that you have a tendency to compare yourself. Once again, you notice the man's prayer in verse 11 when he says, I thank you that I am not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. I think this is actually very common. I think it's very easy for you and I to fall into this habit. This temptation that we look at people that are worse than us, if you will, by some standard. They're not as good as you. They're not as committed as you. I'm better than her, we might think. And we, we begin to, to uh, compare ourselves with other people and see how we're doing relative to how other people are doing. This is clearly what this man is doing. Once again, Augustine said the Pharisee was not rejoicing so much in his own clean bill of health as in comparing it with the diseases of others. He came to the doctor And it would have been more worthwhile to inform him of the things that were wrong with himself instead of keeping his wounds secret and having the nerve to crow over the scars of others. Why do you think he cares so much what other people are like? Why do we? Are other people our moral standard? Is if we excel beyond what other people do, do we think therefore God will uh, approve us? Is, Is our righteousness compared to someone else relevant to God at all? Friends, I would suggest your neighbors and your friends and all the rest are not your moral standard. You know who is. It is God. You want to compare yourself, compare yourself to God. And I think you will finally see yourself for who you truly are. Instead, we compare ourselves to others and that, of course, does not lead to compassion but to contempt in our hearts. Jesus mentions this again in verse 9 that those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and, you see this, treated others with contempt. They looked down on everyone. Pride in yourself and contempt for others go hand in hand. This is why we know the man is not sincere in his prayer when he says, I thank you, God, that I am like this. He is not sincere in thinking God actually produced this righteousness in him. If he was sincere, he wouldn't look down on anyone. He would rather have compassion on them and pity on them. Right? Instead, there's contempt in him. I think this is a great way to identify if we are proud in our own works. Do you look down on anyone? Do you have contempt? Maybe for a person? Maybe for a type of person. Maybe you have contempt for people who embrace a certain lifestyle. Or wear certain clothes. Or hold certain political views. Or certain theological views. A little bit of contempt in our heart and not compassion. Friends, if you have contempt towards anyone, you look down on anyone, you have forgotten the gospel. Because it is but by the grace of God that you and I are not like them. In fact, we might I may be even tempted to pray a prayer looking at this passage. God, I thank you. I'm not like that Pharisee. <laughs> I'll tell you if, you, if you have that tendency to thank God you're not like that Pharisee, you know what you're like? That Pharisee. Mm-hmm. Now, we could look down on a Pharisee. We could look down on moral conservatives just as much as he looked down on this tax collector. Self-justification is very subtle. It blinds us to our pride. Puts contempt in our hearts for others. The third problem that we see with self-righteousness is it looks simply at the behavior, not the heart. You notice this man in his prayer is totally, totally focused on the rules, isn't he? He's focused on his behavior. Even, even you say, I'm going beyond your rules. But he does not see virtue as a matter of his heart. Right? He does not pray, God, I thank you, I'm becoming more patient. God, I thank you that I'm becoming more gentle with my spouse, or I love people I used not to love, or I can forgive more easily than ever before. He certainly does not pray, God, thank you, I'm becoming more humble, right? No, virtue has nothing to do with his heart. It's everything to do with his behavior. It's all about the external conformity to the rules And Jesus warned us time and time against this mentality. He said to those who were religious conservatives in the day that you, you wash the outside of the cup. But what about the inside? It's filthy. You're like, you're like a bleached tombs, whitewashed tombs. The inside is all full of dead man's bones. What about the heart? Even Pastor Josh read for us in Micah 6 that God doesn't want us simply to do kindness. He wants us to love kindness. He wants it from our heart. You see, we say I'm i will clean myself up. Many do, at least, and say then God will accept me. And it's this attitude of self-righteousness: I'll—I'll I'll start acting well, I'll start behaving well. Yesterday we—we we had a, a wonderful time uh, yesterday afternoon with the the Easter egg outreach, and uh, there were, there are were, there were many—I don't know about sixty, eighty children. I'm not sure how many were there. A, a bunch of kids there. Uh, I brought like ten percent, um, right? And uh, we, we had a wonderful time there and um, hearing the gospel and celebrating and face painting and all the rest. And, of course, you know that um, I, I have great delight in, in, in my children. And, um, and, and I feel like, you know, that I guess we'll be almost, I'll be a dad for 13 years next month. And so pray for me and, and uh, I'm excited for that opportunity. But I feel like I've, um, I've learned a lot as a parent. Uh, uh over these last 12 plus years in fact one, one of the weirdest uh times as as a parent well i think so far the strangest time for me for parenting has been uh the potty training and uh and if some of you don't have kids yet, and you just wait, it, it, it is strange. So we, we added two kids to the church family uh, this week, and, and to one ba- baby to, uh, to the Shaws. What, Naomi, is it? That's her name. And to new family having a, their first child. And praise the Lord. What's weird about potty training uh, is that you applaud for poo, right? Have you ever done that before? At least this, maybe we we're doing it wrong, but um, when, when some, one of our kids goes to the bathroom, the whole family rushes to the bathroom, right? And we all look into the toilet. And if we see something brown, we all cheer, right? And we celebrate and we got streamers and confetti goes everywhere. And there's candy awarded. We even have a song in our house um, that I think Allegra may have written. Um, It goes, pee-pee in the potty, my favorite thing to do. Pee-pee in the potty go pee-pee and poo-poo, okay? So it's, it's catchy, isn't it, right? Um, and so it's all, all, all kind of exciting, and, and, and yet what's, what's even more strange is every one of my kids have got to the phase where they've kind of mastered the potty, but not the cleanup. And they, and they begin to think that they're, okay, well, I got this down, and I'm at the point where I can now clean myself. And, and there comes a time where the kids have been in the bathroom for a little while, and you hear the crying, and the screaming, and you open the door, and if, if I could put it, this is like a poop grenade went off, right, and there's just poop everywhere, and it's on the sink, and it's, it's on the faucet, and it's on the ceiling, and you're thinking, huh, there's poo on the forehead, and it's just everywhere, and, and you want, you get the hazmat, team, you know, the hazmat suit, and the rubber gloves, and, uh, you, what, you do is you say, honey, right, you know, he'll call, um, <laughs> and, it, it, it is terrible, and it's awful, and um, that's what self-righteousness is like. I'm going to clean myself up. I'll take care of this. And you, you, when you do, you just, you, you just make it far worse. You become far more filthy. Paul said in the book of Philippians, he said, you know, I, my whole life I've been obeying the rules i've been obeying the rules better than anyone and now i look back on it and paul says you know what it's like all my rule keeping it's like a a big pile of dung that's what it is it's not worth anything in fact he goes on and the bible goes on i think jesus even teaches us that when we try to clean ourselves up you know what happens we become proud we become condescending, we lack compassion, it doesn't change our heart, it actually corrupts our heart, it actually leads to further filthiness. Is what we see happening in this man's heart. And this, by the way, looks differently for all sorts of different people. This is at the heart of all religions. I'll clean myself up. It doesn't matter if you're a Jehovah's Witness, or a Mormon, or a Muslim, or a Buddhist, or a Jewish faith. One guy says, I'll knock on doors. Another guy says, I'll carry a rug and pray in this direction. Another guy says, I don't eat pork. Another guy says, I don't go to R-rated movies. Another guy says, I take pilgrimages to holy sites, right? And, and it's all an attempt to say, God, will you approve me if I do these things? Will you consider me to be righteous if I keep these rules? And it doesn't have to be religious, by the way. You can be secular and do this. I keep a cause. I'm good because I do blank. Whatever it is. I'm better than you because I recycle. I ride a bike or whatever it is. Right? And we we have these causes. And maybe I'm better than you because I do this ministry. Or I'm better than you because I read the right books and I think deeply and I'm more theologically oriented than you are. Many people just lower the standard as about as low as they can go and say, I'm okay. God will accept me. I haven't killed anyone. I don't beat my wife. Right? So certainly when I stand before God, He's going to say, come on in, because I've kept the standard. And it's all self-righteousness. It is all based upon our own works. Just like this Pharisee who expects to be accepted by God because He is good. Jesus concludes in verse 14 that the tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the other. The The elderly pastor who went to the church to pray so convinced of his goodness, think God will accept him because of his morality, Jesus says, you are not accepted. So the question then is, if our own goodness will not gain God's approval, then what will? Well, consider the tax collector's solution to the problem of unrighteousness. We might call this gift righteousness. Righteousness. If the first was working towards righteousness, the other is simply receiving it as a gift, as we consider verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's clear to see the strong contrast between these two, isn't it? The Pharisee looking at his own merit, the tax collector looking for God's mercy, begging for mercy. And you see the reason why he begs for mercy? It's because he looks at himself and what does he see? He sees a sinner. Now, he could have found someone worse. Right? You always find someone worse. I thank you, God, that I'm not a serial killer. Right? But he doesn't compare himself to others. Instead, he measures himself according to God's perfect standard and concludes rightly, I am a sinner. I am everything that people say that I am. And in his heart, self-righteousness is rooted out because he has an accurate self-knowledge of himself. Self-knowledge, by the way, and a true understanding of self comes only when we compare ourselves with God. Let me just tell you just a quick point of application. The, the quickest way to root out the self-righteousness in your heart, my Christian brothers and sisters, is being open and honest about yourself. That you find people in your life where you can tell them what you don't tell anybody else, what you're struggling with, what you're sinning. This is a wonderful way to fight against your own heart, to rise up in pride and self-exaltation. This man has this very contrasting prayer, but just as powerful as his prayer. You notice his posture. The Pharisee stands in the inner courts... To pray, the tax collector does not approach the temple, but Jesus says, standing far off, clearly sensing an unworthiness to approach God. the Pharisee undoubtedly prayed with his eyes open to heaven, as was the custom of the day. The tax collector dared not look to heaven, but cast his, kept his head downcast in prayer. The Pharisee prayed with assurance, the tax collector rather beat his breast in sorrow. What a contrast. There was between these two men in the temple at the hour of prayer. One abusive and greedy traitor to his people, the other a moral exemplar, one notorious for his wickedness and hated by all, one, uh, the other renowned for his self righteousness and admired by all, one lowly and the other self assured. The contrast is startling. But they did have one thing in common they both were sinners but only the tax collector knew it. And therefore, Jesus announced in verse 14, one more time, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house, accepted, justified, approved, rather than the other. I don't know if you can picture that in your mind's eye. The Pharisee leaving the temple courts with his long flowing robes, striding from the temple with his head, held high, confident in his own righteousness. And according to Jesus, he's not accepted by God. The tax collector, out of greed, betrayed his people and making a fortune off the innocent and cast himself on the mercy of God and leaves the temple Jesus justified. God has accepted this man. He didn't keep the law. He didn't fast. He didn't tithe. He didn't do what he's supposed to do. All he did was trust in God and beg for God's mercy. And God declares him to be righteous. And by the way, this happens over and over and over in the Bible. Just consider our, our study of Luke. There's always two guys. One bad and one good. One moral and one wicked, right? And it's the tax collector and the Pharisee here. In Luke 7, it was the, the woman of the city and Simon the Pharisee and his house. In Luke 15, it was the younger brother who squandered his father's wealth in, the, in riotous living in the, in the faraway land and the older brother who stays at home and obeys. There's always a good guy and a bad guy. And every time, the good guy is lost and the bad guy is saved. Over and over and over and over. To the point where Jesus will say in Matthew 21, you know prostitutes and tax collectors are, are entering into the kingdom of God before the moral conservatives. The morally religious. There are two ways to reject God. Two ways to get God off your back. One is to break all God's rules. The other is to keep God's rules. You could be like the tax collector, do whatever you want, I don't care what God says, get off my back. Or you could be like the Pharisee, you could be very moral, you could give your money away, and therefore expect God's favor, in some sense say in your heart, if you don't say with your mouth, you now owe me God. Right. Some are bad and some are good, but you're either bad or good for the same reason. And it's to take control of your life. It's to get God off your back. The bad person says, stay away. I don't care about you. The good person says, I've done your rules. Now you owe me. But both want to be their own master. The only difference is the good people don't know they're doing it. They don't know themselves. The bad people know they're avoiding God. The religious people keep believing they're earning God's approval by their own goodness. That's why the bad keep getting saved and the good people keep missing it. They don't see their need. My friends, if you're sick, the likelihood of you getting better is directly correlated with your understanding that you are sick. If you don't think you're sick, you'll never go to the doctor. This is why Jesus, I think, ends this teaching at the end of verse 14 when he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is a reference to our final salvation, that the humble are saved and the proud are lost. Say, so why are the humble saved? Did you have to, is humility earned salvation? No, that's not the case at all. But it's only the humble who see their need for a savior. It's only the humble who admit their, that they're sick and they need God's mercy. The proud are, are, never admit they're sick. They're, they're too busy looking at all the other sick people. The humble see themselves as a sinner as they are, just as this man. And what does he ask for? He asks for God's mercy. Let me be very clear here this morning. You can only be accepted by God if you reach out for God's mercy. That's it. Last night, I mentioned we gathered for Chris Walker's memorial and by all accounts, Chris Walker was a good and godly man that blessed hundreds of lives, if not thousands. But please understand, Chris Walker is not in heaven today. Because he blessed you or me. He is in heaven today because he called out for God's mercy on a sinner. And I don't know how many funerals I've been to, and you've been to them too, where we all get up and we all say about how wonderful this person was, and he give you the shirt off his back, and he's kind and love and took care of his family, and therefore he's in heaven. And I just tell you, it's nonsense. It is not true. You cannot get to heaven by being kind to your wife and obeying the speed limit and paying your taxes and being good and moral. You can only get there by receiving the mercy of God. Parents, beware of helping your children on the respectable path of the Pharisee. Beware of just teaching them the honorable and good and moral behavior without teaching them to be humble in their own heart. Pray for humility in the hearts of your children. They should be good and respectable and honorable and obey you and so forth, but their hearts are far more important than their behavior. Pray that we will be a church not filled with Pharisees, but a community uh, demonstrating the humility of this tax collector. That's why one of the, when we gather for worship, one of the things we do in our pastoral prayer is we confess sin. Because we want to be reminded of, of who we are in order that we might rejoice in the grace of God. When you remind yourself of your sin, of your great need, you, you listen, when you understand your sin and the greatness of your sin, you then magnify the greatness of the mercy of God which He has given to you. If you minimize your sin, you therefore must minimize God's grace if you're not that bad then God's grace is not that good. It's only when we understand ourselves that we exalt who God is and what He has done for us. I like the story years ago, uh, over a century ago, Dr. Bernardo ran a London orphanage and he was approached by a dirty, ragged little boy. And and the boy asked for admission into his orphanage and the doctor looked at him and said, but my boy, I don't know you. What do you have to recommend you? The boy quickly held up before Dr. Bernardo his ragged, stinky coat. And he said to him, if you please, sir, I thought these here would be all I need to recommend me. The doctor caught him up in his arms and took him into his orphanage because that was it. That's all he needed to recommend him was his rags, was his need. We cannot stand before God based upon your own record. We have to look away for ourselves and cry out to Jesus for mercy, just as this tax collector did. Be merciful to me. You know, when the Bible, especially in the New Testament, uses the word mercy, it's almost always the Greek word elios or helios. Um, almost always. Except two times in the New Testament, it's a different word. It's the word helastrion. Look over in chapter 17, for instance, you see these ten lepers, and they they pray. Where is it? And, uh verse 13, Luke 17, verse 13. Master, have mercy on us. Elias, they're saying. Be, have have mercy. Have what it means is have compassion on us. Have sympathy. Have pity on us. Look over in Luke 18, verse what is it? Uh, 39. Uh, son of david is a blind beggar son of david have mercy on me have compassion on me have pity on me it's the word elios that's not the word the tax collector used he used a word that's very very unique it's the word holastrion it does not mean have sympathy compassion or pity it means appease your wrath it means make atonement He is therefore not asking God to let him off the hook. He's not asking God, will you just look over my sin? Will you have pity on me? No, he's saying, I'm so sinful, I need atonement. He, by the way, says this in the temple courts. Next to the temple, in the temple, are two rooms. The holy place and the holy of holy place. In the holy of holies is where God's presence is supposed it dwells. And there in the holy holy place, one piece of furniture, it's the Ark of the Covenant. It's like a chest. And inside the chest are the Ten Commandments of God. It's God's law. And the idea is whenever we come into God's presence, we cannot come into God's presence without first being examined by God's law. Now, there's a problem with that. Because who will pass that test? When God's law is my standard, who will pass that? No one. But that ark, that chest, it has a lid, doesn't it? The lid has a name. The lid is called the mercy seat. Or in Greek, the hilastrion. And it is there that God's mercy shields us from His standard. From His law. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, only the high priest will walk into the Holy of Holies Shielding us from the law of God as He stands representing His people is the holastrion is the mercy seat. It's where God's wrath is appeased. He would come only with the blood of a sacrifice, wouldn't He? And He would sprinkle that blood upon the mercy seat so that the law's requirement were satisfied. A substitute had died. The penalty was fulfilled. The tax collector knows this. It's why he's using this word. It's why he's asking for holastrion He is not saying, God, just give me a break. He's not saying, God, lower your standards. He's not saying, God, sweep my sin under the rug. He's saying, Lord, I need atonement. I need someone to pay for my sins. I need to be covered like the halastrion in the temple. I need to be covered with the blood of a sacrifice. I mentioned to you, there's one other place that this word is used. It's used in Hebrews chapter 2. And maybe you marked that place only other place in the New Testament we see it in verse 17. Therefore, he, that's a reference to Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Here it is, my translation says, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That literally means to appease the wrath of God. Maybe your translation says make atonement, but that is the word halastrion. You see, Jesus has come to make a way for us to have mercy, to give mercy, God to give mercy, to give mercy for the sins of the people. My friends, my Christian brothers and sisters, He doesn't look over your sins. He pays for them through the blood of Christ. You need atonement. You need a substitute so God might give you mercy. He covers you just as He covered the mercy seat, the halastrion. He now covers you with the blood of another, with the blood of Christ. Here's the good news today. You can come into this room this morning unaccepted by a holy God whether you are blatant in your sin or you conceal it in smug self-righteousness and you can leave justified. You can leave approved and declare righteous by God's sight because Jesus has died to give that mercy. The Bible says if you confess Jesus is your Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Scripture says in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. My friends, if you would simply yield your life to Christ and and, and call out to Him like this, this tax collector, Lord, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He will accept you and cover you with the shed blood of Jesus Christ that you too might be accepted. You pray that in your heart right now. God, have mercy on me, please. Have mercy, cover me with the blood of Christ. I believe, I submit my life to Him that you might be accepted by God. Of course, many of us have received that mercy, haven't we? My question for you Christians as we end this morning is, has it changed you? If you truly understand that you are accepted by God by the shed blood of a substitute, our Lord, you will never look down on anyone. You won't. It's simply by the grace of God that He has accepted you. You never shake your head and someone say, that person's disgusting. You'll never look down and have contempt in your heart. It will change you. You know, God's blood-bought mercy, it actually teaches us two truths. The fact that you need God's mercy and the mercy only comes through Jesus' shed blood teaches us two things. Number one, God is not impressed with you. Does someone want to say amen to that? God is not impressed with you. If He was... Jesus wouldn't need to die. Number two, God loves you. Because Jesus did die. And I'll tell you, I'd much rather have God's love than try to impress him. If I need to impress him, i got to keep that up. If I have his love, I have his love forever. No matter what. Can we rejoice in this meal? As we take that cup, the blood of Christ, can we remind ourselves as we remind one another... I am loved by God and I am accepted by God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and God's overflowing mercy. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for this meal that we can come now and remind ourselves what you taught us here in Luke 18 that is only by mercy Mercy through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and His broken body that we can be accepted by You. There are many people here, dozens of people here, maybe hundreds, accepted by God. Not because we are good people, but because we are sinful people who have received His mercy. This is a meal for sinners who have received the mercy of God. Thank you. We thank you for our friends here today that perhaps have yet to receive that mercy. I trust there are some here who think that one day they'll stand before you, Father, and stand on their own record. I pray that you would help them to see it's a lie. They cannot stand before you and say, well, I'm better than this guy, and I'm better than that guy, and I did this and I did that. It will not work. It never will work. Help them despair to despair of their own self-effort and cry out to You even now, God, give me mercy. Atone for my sin. I believe and I submit my life to Jesus my King. Father, as we now come to this meal, I pray that You would help us as we take a moment to consider our own hearts. We want to come to this meal following after Jesus. We know this meal is not for perfect people. As we already prayed, it's a meal for sinners. And yet we don't want to come here in flagrant sin and treat your grace lightly. So even now, in your kindness as we pray silently, reveal sin to us that we may once again rejoice in your mercy that covers us, we pray. We love you, Father. We thank you for Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.